Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit in New York City. One big question is about natural gas, especially as it increasingly replaces coal-fueled power plants. And we are so lucky uh, to have with us Greg Vesey. He is Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of LNG Limited, based in Houston, joining us here in New York. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for being here. Let's just start with the idea of LNG, a major uh, natural gas supplier, working on a whole bunch of projects right now, trying to build out the infrastructure uh, at a time when natural gas prices have kind of declined. Give us a sense of the lay of the land from your perspective. I sure will, but, and thanks, Lisa Paul. It's great to be here. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting across the globe how competitive, and I never thought in 39 years of the U.S. energy industry that I'd be saying how competitive U.S. gas is for export. And what people across the globe are seeing is this huge resource that we continue to make more and more of. It's at a price at Henry Hub, which is a stable price now. I'm used to huge volatility in this price. They look out and see it very stable, and it's a very favorable political and business environment. So it's very much pointing to the U.S. to be a place to come. All right. Who's coming here? Is it China? Uh, If you look out, the big big growth areas are going to be Europe and China. I shouldn't say Europe and China, Europe and Asia. Obviously, China, the biggest component of Asia. But yes, Europe and China are the two that are really hitting it hardest right now. Europe, it's interesting. We had a uh, kind of an industry meeting in Berlin a couple weeks back, and the German Minister of Energy made the point of saying, we used to say we're all about being 100% electrified. Now we're saying natural gas is the best next step for us to take. That's a huge change for them. And they're gearing up. They're looking at regas facilities. The whole region is putting in regas facilities. They're very focused on LNG, and Gulf Coast LNG is go- U.S. Gulf Coast LNG is going to be the most affordable and competitive for them. So, Greg, let's let's talk about the Gulf Coast. Is the infrastructure there in the Gulf Coast right now to really take advantage of this robust demand you've been talking about? It, it really is more so in Louisiana. I think okay. that, you know because of where Henry Hub is, it was originally designed to be the place where all the gas comes on shore. Well, that model is completely reversed. Now all the gas is up north and it's coming to the south. But the hub is still that indicator that everyone will look at. And all the the, uh, infrastructure has been built around that. So there's pipes that were, granted they were intended to take gas from south to north. Now they're all turning around and bringing gas from north to south. But it can bring huge amounts of that gas at competitive rates to the Gulf Coast. And you have a very friendly environment in southwest Louisiana where we are. They are really excited. They want to be like leading the U.S. and leading the world in LNG exports, yeah. and they are ready for all that infrastructure development. How quickly does the U.S. give out permits for you to do these projects? It's a great discussion, Lisa. Um, it's not a quick process, but it wasn't designed to be because it's first and foremost to make sure it's the right thing for the country to do and to do it safely. So Has the process gotten faster? It has gotten faster, yes. I think what we experienced, and we're fully permitted. We've been through all the FERC and the deal. We were ready to go with our Magnolia project. That was probably a two-and-a-half-year, three-year exercise. It's a little faster than that, but not materially. And I think as, as business people and citizens, we should be a little bit okay with that, that it's a good process that works. How competitive is U.S. natural gas on the world market, and what needs to change maybe to make it more competitive? 
You know, it's been very competitive. Uh, the, the marker that we all looked at was Europe, and about a year and a half ago, it turned where it was much more competitive. It was very competitive versus Europe gas. And they've had a little downturn this winter, both in Asia and Europe, so it's kind of borderline. Um, but it's still very competitive on the world stage. What you have to look for, you know, what we call freight on free on board, where it's picked up at the tailgate of a U.S. plant, is a very competitive price. Then it's how far do you have to pay transportation to travel? All right, so we are at the New Energy Finance Summit, and natural gas is definitely a growing source of energy, but it's not a new energy. And I'm just wondering, especially as it competes with renewable sources of energy, how does it compete environmentally? So it's, it's a great question. I think there's two things. It's very necessary for renewables because you have the intermittency of renewables. Natural gas is a quick startup and can do that. I think the U.S. has shown the world a great example that natural gas is an excellent bridge fuel. And how long that bridge fuel is, we don't know. But the market brought emissions down in the U.S. by switching from coal to natural gas. The rest of the world has seen that, and they want to replicate that. Interesting. So still, the, just real quickly, the, where's the price of gas, and what, kind of how do you view it right now? Well, it's interesting. The price of U.S. Henry Hub is, is probably 280 to $3.00. Um, when I started in the industry in 1980, it was $2. Right. So that, that tells you that's a very competitive price. I think it's interesting that uh, the volatility that we see over the winter hasn't been there this year. In fact, the price got to its lowest point on, if you remember that coldest day of the year yep. when people in Chicago couldn't go out of their apartments and stuff. It's the day the price was the lowest this winter. Okay, interesting. Greg Vesey, CEO and Managing Director of LNG Limited, based in Houston, Texas. But joining us here at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference in New York. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And when I think new energy, I think solar, I think wind, I think those big wind farms onshore, offshore, uh, generating electricity. So that's why I am very excited for our next guest, John Lavelle. John is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Offshore Wind for GE Renewable Energy. He joins us here in New York. John, welcome. Thanks, Paul. You know, when I think about some of these big offshore wind farms, you know, it just, it, you know, you could really think about the scale of this business. So if you could just start us off and just size up what the global wind business is and kind of the growth story there. Yeah, if you think about it today, there's about 17 to 20 gigawatts of offshore wind installed globally. Uh, and conservative estimates would have that going to 90 gigawatts by 2030. That would be comparable to the entire installed base of the UK, for example. Uh, but I think beyond that, China, Taiwan, Korea, Asia, the northeast of the US are coming strong. And I think that number could grow by another 50%. So I think you could end up with 20 to 150 gigawatts globally. Okay, so demand and use of wind power definitely increasing, and there has been a consolidation uh, as far as market share goes with General Electric, Investus, and some of the other uh, big uh, turbine producers. Profitability, however, has been a challenge. Can you talk a little bit about why uh, profitability fell at the end of last year and kind of what will, what will pick it back up going forward? Well, you know, from an offshore wind perspective, you know, we're just getting in the game. You know, so GE's not... Uh, has not historically been in offshore wind. We got into offshore wind when we acquired Alstom. So our game today is 
to invest to generate the to, to develop the technology to compete in the future. So we're we've invested we're investing now to uh, develop the Hollyadex, which is the largest offshore wind turbine in the world by far. Um, it'll stand nearly 900 feet off the ocean floor. The blades will be well over a football field long each, and it'll drive the economics low for our customers. And if we can help our customers compete and grow, we'll be successful too in the future. So our, our, our point is we're, gonna, we're investing in offshore because we see the market growing. We see that GE can add value with technology development. We know how to do that. We have a global scale. Uh, we've been in the energy industry for 100 years. 20% of all the electricity that's produced comes from some form of GE technology. Right. So I think we can help the industry grow by playing. So how competitive is wind energy relative to maybe some traditional energy sources and maybe even no, it's solar? Great. It's, it, yeah, like it's that. a great question because, you, you know, in the end, you have to compete, right, against everything. And, uh, and as, you, as we look at these technologies, uh, in all the business, I've run and worked in every facet of the energy industry. So I've watched costs come down with volume. So it's a, it's a volume curve as cost comes down. The more volume you have, the more productive you have, the more scale you have, the more your cost will compete. We're seeing bids now in the UK. UK auctions will come up in June. You'll see those prices. We've seen the auctions in Germany. Uh, you saw the auction in Massachusetts. You've got offshore wind now competing with, uh, with onshore levels that have had a, you know, almost two decades of a head start, right? So you see the cost come down. You want to get to the point where it's unsubsidized so that you can compete without subsidies, with zero subsidies. Uh, and what helps you get there? It's scale, it's size, so that you get you you minimize your infrastructure every we we had a six megawatt machine now we go to a 12 that means you have to build half the pedestals out in the ocean yeah you have to build half the cabling it's easier to service so as you take cost out and you get volume volume and size and standardization will help the industry so John Lavelle, President and CEO uh, for the Offshore Wind Unit of GE Renewable Energy with us here uh, right now. I'm wondering, uh, how about storage? That's yeah. been one of the challenges, certainly, yeah. for solar. What about wind? Yeah, great question. In, in our renewable energy portfolio uh, in GE, we have onshore and offshore wind. We've got hydro. We got a hydro business. We have an LM blade manufacturing. We acquired them in 2017, the largest maker of blades. We have a grid business, GE's grid, all the transmission and distribution, and very, very important to have that grid business marry up with the, the wind, because you have to be able to stabilize the grid as you convert from baseload nuclear and coal to cyclical renewables. And then you get the storage. So we also have a hybrid and storage business that we've just uh, put in place. And so I think, uh, the value of us being able to bring green electrons, if you will, to people that want it, not just households, but to companies that have said, we'll buy green. Having a storage so you can store the, the, the wind energy. How? I, I just think I, I'm trying well, to understand. Well, through battery storage. Through battery, battery storage. storage? Yeah, it's battery okay. storage, yeah, yeah. 
you can decide where you want to put it, where right. you want to store it. Do you want okay. to store it at the site? Do you want to store it at a local distribution uh, network out in your neighborhood? You know, where do you store it? So what? So what are some of the constraints? Like, I don't want a big wind thing in my backyard. Yeah. Maybe. How about for offshore? What are the constraints? Do, do whoever owns, who has the rights to that water, say, I don't want to. I mean, how does that well, work? Well, where, normally, do you, where do you decide where to put these things? Uh, keeping it simple, Paul, I think <laughs> normally it's it, the government okay. owns the land, all right. right? And will allocate the land through some process, whether it's in the U.S., Taiwan, Japan, China, uh, you know, U.K., whatever. They, yep. they allocate the land. Uh, then, in all the cases, they have to go through some permit process, typical to a zoning board in the local town. Okay. You'll say, this is going to be built. You have so many, so much time to raise your questions or your concerns that have to come and it's a lot it's the birds right so there's yep. concern for the birds uh, there's concern for the site and the visual mm -hmm. impact it may have for local residents yeah so putting these things deeper and deeper into the ocean becomes uh, um, you know, a question for that it helps, yeah, right? right? The yeah. farther yeah. you're out, but then, but then you got to bring the the power back. Yeah, you you have to bring the power back. Right. So some of the some of the projects like are going on in the UK now are so far off. They're going to use high voltage DC. Interesting. To bring them back. John Lavelle, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> okay, fabulous catching up with you. Uh, John Lavelle, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Offshore Wind Unit at GE Renewable Energy, joining us here at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. <coughs> right now we're going to turn our attention to the America power markets. A lot of change going on there as renewable sources compete with some of the more traditional sources of energy in this country. Uh, to help us walk through that story is Paul Browning. Uh, Paul is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Mitsubishi uh, Hitachi Power Systems Americas. Paul, welcome uh, to the show. Paul, give us a sense of kind of where we are in the U.S. in terms of power generation. To what extent are renewables really becoming a competitive player in the marketplace? Well, thanks, Paul and Lisa. Um, yeah, so there's really a lot of change happening in the power sector right now. We are seeing the cost of uh, electricity from renewables and battery storage dropping rapidly. At the same time, we're actually also seeing the cost of electricity from natural gas power generation dr dropping rapidly as well. Um, and so there's a there's a, a, a you know a, a real uh, competitive dynamic there happening between renewables with storage and natural gas. Competitive dynamic or race to the bottom, either one. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it depends. You know, the cost of renewables. You know, the, the cost of solar here in New York City is very different than in the desert in Arizona. Um, the, the cost of natural gas in different parts of the country is different. So, you know, a lot of the times the, the answer to, you know, which one of these is going to be less expensive is, you know, it depends. So, but in this race, a lot of governments have subsidized the renewables to try to reduce the carbon emissions. How much is that necessary to get the renewable market up to speed to truly be competitive in a free market type of uh, environment? You know, right now, renewable plus battery storage needs a subsidy in order to compete with natural gas in almost every market. Significant subsidy? Well, uh, the 30% investment tax credit that exists today is the kind of subsidy it needs to be competitive in, in, in some markets. Um, and so, uh, and, and you know, the, the thing that I always talk to people about is, is um, 
you know, natural gas is not standing still. Um, you know, our turbines are less expensive today on a dollar per kilowatt basis than they were in the past. They're more fuel efficient, and the price of natural gas is dropping due to new drilling technologies. So, you know, while, and, and the good thing for consumers is they're getting lower carbon, lower cost electricity, you know, as we all compete with one another in a, you know, in a marketplace where competition and technology is determining who wins. So is big coal in terms of the context of energy or electricity, is big coal just done? Is, is it stay over? Well, in the United States right now, it's just, it's cheaper to produce electricity right. from natural gas and renewables than it is from coal. And of course, it's also much more carbon efficient. And that combination of cost and carbon efficiency is just very, very difficult to beat. So I really don't see any new coal power plants being built. And as a matter of fact, what we're seeing is a lot of you know, coal that was built in the 60s and 70s is now being retired and it's being replaced by a combination of natural gas and renewables. So talking about bringing down the cost, how does artificial intelligence play into this, especially as it takes over the human component of running some of these plants? Yeah, so actually, you know, AI, what we're, we're really not, there's only about 35 people who work in a combined cycle, power, a natural gas power plant, and actually less than that in a renewable power plant. We're actually not going after the people with our AI. What we're really going after are, are lost production and, and, and uh, unplanned downtime, which are very big expenses for our customers. So we're trying to eliminate unplanned maintenance uh, because the AI is able to, to identify a problem before it becomes a problem, and we turn unplanned maintenance into planned maintenance and, and uh, do it in a, in a very cost-effective way. Paul Sweeney, this is such an interesting point because people look at artificial intelligence as the bogeyman, right. uh, the bogeyman for why people are losing their jobs, but this is an example of how to increase productivity, productivity and profitability yep. uh, without actually cutting jobs. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. But in just technology in general, is how much is that impacting the traditional power business in the, in the U.S.? When I think of these power plants, I think of these monster things. Again, I live in New Jersey, so I see these monster plants all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> we have lots of power plants and lots of plants in New Jersey. But how is technology impacting just the creation of electricity? Yeah, so as, as I said before, the, you know, the, the biggest impact is the cost of renewables, storage, and natural gas power generation are all dropping dramatically. And so, it, and those happen to be the most carbon efficient choices that we have right now. You know, that combination of natural gas and renewables is about 85% lower CO2 emissions than a, a, a retiring coal-fired power plant. So we're actually, in the U.S., people, a lot of people don't realize this, in the U.S. power sector, carbon emissions are down 33% since 2005. Um, we sponsor Carnegie Mellon University. They have a website. Is that, is that the switch from coal <coughs> to gas? And yeah, so it, okay. it's, a, it's the switch from coal to a combination of gas yes, and renewables. Got it. And you can go to www.emissionsindex.org, yeah. and, and once a quarter we update that number. Okay. One word, Paul Browning. If you've been in this market for decades, if you had to invest in one renewable energy source, what would it be? I just started a renewable power technology company yesterday. There you we, we go. We just announced it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, distributed power generation for PV solar and uh, battery storage. There you go. That's solar it. and battery storage. Yeah. Paul Browning, thank you so much okay. for being with thank us. Thank you. Paul Browning is president and chief executive officer of Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems Americas, joining us here at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference. So interesting uh, to sort of see the price dynamic as everybody tries to bring costs down, including gas. Yes. So it makes it a kind of shifting uh, competitive landscape.
Some big news in the healthcare industry for the United States. President Trump's administration, the Department of Justice, coming out and now trying to claim that the entirety of the Obamacare Act uh, is unconstitutional. Joining us now is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Max, what exactly just happened and, and how big of a reversal is it by the DOJ? It's a pretty substantial one. So the DOJ had, had previously supported the lawsuit in partial form, and, and that itself was pretty unusual. You know, the DOJ generally tends to, to defend the law of the land as opposed to, uh, you know, supporting a case against it. But they they they'd only, they'd elected to keep uh, big chunks of the ACA. So this move would basically means that they're supporting a dramatically more disruptive a potential result in which really the entire in the entirety of the ACA would go away. That's everything from the Medicaid expansion to the the changes to the individual market, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, and you know little things like calorie counts on menus and the FDA's ability to approve biosimilars. It would be uh, just a, a giant mess. So Max, what do you think changed for the Trump administration to take this more aggressive approach here? I, I'm actually still trying to puzzle that out because from a purely kind of political and policy standpoint, it's it's pretty puzzling. Uh, you know, the 2018 midterms kind of told us that uh, Americans are, are gravitating uh, towards liking the ACA more than they did over the initial years of his implementation. And, um, you know, the move to, to kind of more aggressively try to take it away uh, not only kind of goes against what the lesson that the administration probably should have learned, but against even its own 2020 budget, which, you know, still, you know, has massive cuts to Medicaid and uh, repeals parts of the ACA, but doesn't, you know, do what this case does and, and just kind of, you know, potentially rip away coverage from from tens of millions of Americans uh, overnight. Yeah, uh, I'm wondering from a market perspective, are there companies that you would expect would either benefit or uh, lose out should the D Department of Justice be successful in this attempt? So the uh, you know in insurers that are focused on on Medicaid and the individual market would definitely suffer. You know they, they would get some some market power back in the form of reduced regulation, but you know the the millions of customers they lose would would outweigh that, especially in the near term. And then hospitals, uh, in the sense that you know when people don't have coverage, they don't get care. But you know it's still pretty unlikely that this case will uh, will go through uh, or you know actually end up invalidating the ACA because it's based on pretty shaky legal ground. Uh, the idea that, you know, negating the penalty of the individual mandate uh, somehow means that the entirety of the rest of the law when, should be invalid when Congress is pretty explicitly uh, given an indication that it doesn't think that's going to be the case because when it had the opportunity to do exactly that, it elected not to. So, Max, what do you think the next steps are here? Um, you know, I, I think we'll see a kind of an aggressive pushback from Democrats who are actually, you know, outlining a set of bills that would actually strengthen the ACA uh, yeah. today <laughs> in, in pretty, pretty good timing cool. for them. It just gives them a kind of a new avenue of attack and, and a really immediate one. Well, but Max Neeson of Bloomberg Opinion, this is exactly where I wanted to go with you, this whole political uh, deliberation. What politically was President Trump trying to go for, perhaps the Department of Justice, given the fact that in the midterm elections, it did seem like voters did want the Obamacare. They did want uh, some sort of health care base for people who might work, you know, gigs or, or things where they don't get health care. Yeah, I, that's what makes this so inexplicable. And, and beyond just what you saw in the midterms, you also have uh, a bunch of states and, and pretty Republican states 
electing to adopt the, the Medicaid expansion that the law had through through referendums. Now even Kansas is considering it. So the, the move to kind of try to uproot this law entirely uh, is really just at the moment at least inexplicable, maybe a triumph of, of ideology over over smart strategic political thinking. I, I really don't know what what they had in mind. Uh, maybe we'll find out, but it clearly seems to indicate that they they haven't really learned the political lesson about health care and are going to campaign on a, a full repeal once again, uh, which I, I don't think will work out terrifically well for them. Max, do you think this was just a coincidence that the Mueller report comes out and gives the president a victory and, and then we've kind of got this announcement? Or is, I think there's some... I, I mean, if it was deliberate, I, I can't imagine what, what the thinking was because... You know, it, it gives Democrats a ready-made opportunity to pivot towards a, an issue that's a clear winner for them with voters, as opposed to the Miller report, which, you know, haven't seen the whole thing, uh, but, you know, at least optically, at least in the beginning stages, uh, didn't seem to damage the president as much as some people expected. So yeah. now they, they have a, a perfect opportunity to pivot away from it, and so, uh, they'll use it. So we've talked about this before, Max, and that is that Obamacare is not perfect. It's been highly flawed. The rollout was not perfect. Uh, there are ways to make it better. There is a question of, you know, could this be uh, the first step in the GOP presenting some sort of plan of their own to grapple with some of the health care uh, issues, problems in the United States? You know, they... If there's such a plan from the Trump administration, it, it doesn't really exist or doesn't deviate particularly far from, you know, what they what they tried and failed to pass over the last couple of years, which, you know, the, the main effect of that was to basically kick a lot of people off their coverage, make government health care benefits generally more difficult to access and uh, reduce regulation. Um, other than that, there, there's not kind of an overriding ethos or, or any plan that does much more anything different than that and uh you know if, if one exists we've yet to see it maybe it'll come but considering that this you know this would repeal the law with without any effort at a replacement and uh, just rely on a divided congress to to finally i guess come up with something uh i just don't 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 right. see it yet max neeson thanks so much max is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for bloomberg opinion joining us in our bloomberg 1130 studios Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.